to enjoy life. You have one chance and you have one heart. And if you carry all that hatred in your heart, you're preventing yourself that happiness that life is all about. You should just enjoy life, enjoy what life has to offer. And for me personally, there is nothing better in life than the laughter of a child, than to be able to pay it forward and help somebody in need, to watch them find that inner spirit and inner life again. Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of A Contagious Smile, where every smile tells a story. I have the extreme blessing of having Miss Vicky on with us today. As you guys know that we try to bring resources to you from any and every possible way so that you can also hear from other survivors and thrivers um, in ways that maybe will help you in your journey. Vicki is amazing. She has been through so, so much and I'm just in awe. We've been chatting for a while before we decided to go ahead and do this. She was a golden child growing up and ended up in a narcissistic abusive marriage and has come out just on top of all of it. And I'm just really honored that she's with us today. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start, I guess, at the beginning. You were a golden child. Can you kind of tell us about what that is to most people, because a lot of people I speak with are the black sheep like myself. So tell me about the golden child. Sure. So to me, the golden child was basically that I was the favorite child, even though it was obviously never said out loud. Um, I was the youngest. I was also a miracle or a rainbow baby after my stillborn sister, you know, was born and, and died. And I also was the people pleaser. So I ended up being the golden child, I believe, because I, my, you know, I was a people pleaser. I wanted nothing to do with getting in trouble. I wanted to just follow rules. And my sister was the opposite. She was the black sheep because she was rebellious because she didn't just follow rules and she challenged my parents. Um, so I, I think that that is a huge reason why I was the golden child. I didn't have outward uh, emotional or verbal abuse from either parent, but my dad definitely was the narcissist in that, you know, I had to achieve, I had to please, I had to do everything he said basically in order to stay in his good graces. Right. Now, did you have a good relationship with both parents? So I had a good relationship with both, but I would say that the relationship with my dad was really based on the fact of <clears throat> I just liked the same things he did and would tag along with him because when my parents' uh, marriage ended in divorce when I was 14 or 15 years old, then there was a huge riff between my dad and me for several years, maybe a decade, maybe longer. Um, and my mom and I just got closer. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me what the relationship was like for your sister that was the black sheep? Did she get along with both parents or was there one more than the other? No, she definitely got along with my mom and not my dad. And she is into her fifties and is just really healing and resolving being the black sheep and understanding our father's nature and, you know, why she's had problems in her life why she still desires his approval and his affection. And she's in her fifties. Um, and quite honestly, I have been helping her because I've just feeling like I've been illuminated to a lot of truths and done a lot of healing myself. And so I help 
I help her see things. And so, but yes, so, so she is just starting to accept that about our father and have a surface, if you will, relationship with him. Did you and your sister get along when you were kids? Not really, but Mm -hmm. she's seven years older. So it was also very different that, that in that way. Um, But we really did it because she resented me as the golden child. And she um, just didn't really, she thought that I was just young and dumb and all the little sister thing. And we really didn't have a good relationship until um, she was into her thirties and I was into my late twenties. Gotcha. So what came out of being a golden child? You got to be of age of teenagers. What happened to like, when you started dating, was there a specific guy that you kind of went towards more than the others? So I definitely was trying to get men's attention and because I didn't get my dad's attention, approval, or, um, acceptance really, and his affection. So I was seeking that. And so I don't know if that really had anything to do with the golden child piece. It was more of just what was lacking being raised by a narcissist father. Right. See, that's so interesting. Cause I just like real, when you said that, I was like, wow, I wonder, cause my sperm donor was never, never, ever affectionate. So my brother, who's a golden child, who we talked about off air, um, who is brilliant. He's such a smart guy and he is just got so much going for him. And I wonder, did he go towards his person, his partner who was more affectionate because and older, because that was what he was lacking from his dad, our dad, which now like now is like an epiphany for me because now I'm hearing it from a golden child's point of view, which I never had that before. Wow. So then you get yourself into a relationship with someone who wasn't the greatest. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I shared with you that I, I dated and then married someone who was also a narcissist, but a different flavor of it. Whereas my dad was more cold and less, much less affectionate, if at all. Uh, the ex-husband was extremely demonstrative with his affection, extremely generous and seeming like this, this incredible benevolent person. Um, and ultimately he was a covert narcissist. But what I will say is that just as um, I tried to people please, you know, my father and other people in my life, then the ex-husband put me on a pedestal. And so for years, he kind of worshipped me in a way and made me feel like I was still this golden child, but now I'm like the golden girlfriend and golden wife, right? Right. Until ultimately, I'm human in in whatever way for him, I fell from grace. And then then it was hell on earth for many, many years. Did he get along with your dad? Not at all. Not at all. (laughs) My dad disliked him from the very beginning. And my ex tried to get his approval from the very beginning. And yes. And so what's interesting is that, so my ex is um, another race than me. We're different races. And to me, that was why my family or my dad didn't like him, which could have been part of it. But later my father told me um, that he really just felt like my ex was trying way too hard. And he felt like he was covering up for whatever the inadequacies or other issues were. So 
was this the first individual you've been in a relationship with interracially? Yes. Oh, and see, now you're an adult, not a teen and not living at home. And okay, because if you were growing up and this was, a, you know, something that, but who cares what their skin color is, as long right. as they're treating you right. And at this point, he was, he had you on a pedestal. This should be a parent's dream at this point. Right, right. Well, what's interesting is my dad, dad, once I got um, engaged to my ex-husband, my dad's dad, my grandfather, he disowned me because I was dating and going to marry someone of a different race. So it's it's deep in the family. (laughs) That's crazy. I mean, I understand it because it happens, but yeah. Yeah. He was treating you so well at that point. Wow. Uh, Was he from, he was American. Not that that made a difference. So it was just the skin color. That was the hellbound. Nope. But the family, right. It's not like he was Australian or. Whatever. It was just the fact that yeah. he had a different skin color. So what? But that was just not okay with right. your father, grandfather. Right. And like I said, I think that there could have been a mixture because people were getting in my family were getting vibes from him that he was trying too hard or that he was just a little overbearing, potentially <laughs> a little controlling. You know, they were getting like little glimpses of things that I didn't necessarily see. So okay. it could have been a combo of both. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So did your dad attend your wedding? He did, but that was a whole drama filled situation to get him there. And, right. and then he, and then I had him and my mom walk me down the aisle because it, to me, it wasn't Aww. accurate to just have him do it right? for, to honor the role my mom has played in my life right to that point. And, but, That's but crazy. I would say not, and, and he didn't stick around for the daddy daughter dance. He left. So I didn't get to do that. Did that you was it with your mom? Um, I don't remember. It was such a long time ago, but I don't right. Wow. So he, he walks you down the aisle with your mom, which I think is awesome. Cause that's really cool. And then he leaves before the daddy. That's sorry. That's just not right. That's yeah. I'm sorry. So tell me about your marriage. So at the beginning, it was great. It was, but you know, when you look back, you see all the red flags, all of them, just line them up. No, they're lined up. <laughs> but in the beginning, you don't see it cause you're there. You know, it's, it's just like how many times I've heard you should have left. Why'd you stay? Why didn't you leave? You know, nobody would ever put their hands on me. Nobody would ever hit me. I would never allow it. Nobody signs up for this. Nobody says, Hey, I got nothing to do for the next 15 years. Let's make my life a living hell. Nobody does that. You know, that's, that's crazy. It's crazy, stupid. And, and, you know, when I do speaking engagements, I ask people, would you go to a podiatrist if you had a brain tumor? No. So how are you going to tell me what to do in my situation when you've never been in it? Right. I mean, come on. Right. Be our support and recovery. Don't don't hurt us when we're already there. We don't need it. We've got enough of it. And believe me, we're doing it to ourselves. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That's just more victim blame, victim shame. And the question really should be, why did he think it was okay to lay his hands on you? Why did he think it was okay to berate you and like beat your personhood down to a pulp? That's the question that should be asked by anyone that's trying to support us. Absolutely. How can I help? What can I do? Let's that's what needs to be said. You know, and sometimes you don't have to say anything. Just be in the room, hold our hand if we're ready to be touched. Let us know that there is somebody there who will sit there and not get up and leave and, and, you know, and say, you're worth fighting for because we are. That's so, okay. So we're jumping the gun. So, okay. You you get married and you guys were married for a good little bit um, before things started. Can you kind of tell us what happened when things started getting back? Yeah. So 
uh, I fell from grace, right? I fell off that pedestal of his that he had me on. Um, but you know, it, it's so insidious, right? All, all, all of abuse is insidious, which really goes back to your, your, what you said about other people saying, why don't you leave sooner? Because it doesn't just, there's not just a snap overnight, not usually. And it's just like this. We all have a line that we don't want people to cross how they treat us. And it just gets moved. We just keep moving it like incrementally with every incident that happens of disrespect yes. of any kind of abuse. Right. So, you know, it's hard to say, say that other than that happened, <laughs> this process I just described over, you know, a decade. Um, and <clears throat> while I knew things were really in a rough place, I also wasn't ready to give up on the marriage because I was hell bent on making it work. I was hell bent on being the person in my you know, family who broke the generational curse or cycle of, of divorce. Right. So you put that people pleaser and with that chip on your shoulder, uh, you're going to stay a long time in an abusive situation. Yeah. Right. And so I was still in that, that meant that mental space <clears throat> when I decided I was 35 years old and I needed to have a kid before it was too late. <laughs> um, and I really wanted the marriage to work, you know, and I was praying that, um, having a baby would, would do that. Right. So you have a beautiful daughter. Yes. Yeah. So I had a beautiful daughter, but while I was pregnant, you know, the abuse continued. And that is when I was really starting to hate him at a level that I didn't, I didn't know hate until I start. I became pregnant and became a mom. And when the abuse continued, um, and like I shared with you before, I would hold my stomach and you said, you understood that, you know, Absolutely. while you're being berated, only being pregnant. Uh, but it still took me until she was a year old to leave for the first time. Did the abuse See, I can't say did it heighten because to me, like I told you before, one hit, one kicks too many. Um, yes. Did it intensify while being pregnant? No, it was the same. It was the same. It was continuous. It was the same. Right. Because there were like really high highs where everything was so great, like you couldn't believe it. Yeah. And then there were the lows just kept getting lower. So maybe in that way it intensified. Was he excited about you and him yes. the top? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very much. But I think he's, he's so unhealed and he's so, I'll use like a non, a non-term, like a jacked up from his right. own life and childhood that um, it was almost like anything that's so good because narcissists do this. If anything is so good, if there's joy, if there's peace involved, they can't handle it. And right. so they will attempt to, um, you know, sabotage it. And so that's what he was doing. So you have your beautiful daughter. How was he as a father? Extremely attentive, you know, extremely affectionate, like he was with me, in right? The in the in the beginning and in the good times. Um, but you know, let's just say like his demons were just too strong and he would ignore her at times because he was dealing with his, you know, wrapped up in his own self and whatever his issues were. Um, but typically with her, he was great, but you know, uh, berating me while I'm holding her, that's a no. Absolutely. Right. right. Um, berating me and then leaving to go to work, slamming the door and she's in her high chair and she's leaning over to see me and I'm slumped in the corner crying. Like, no, those right. are the things that were starting to say, make, like make me to give me the catalyst to say no more. Right. Because I, I could obviously see that she would never grow up to be the person that God created her to be if I stayed in that situation. And right. I didn't want that for her. And so quite honestly, I 
I left or I, I, you know, escaped with her twice on two different occasions because of her. It wasn't even because of me. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cause we're, we are just so low on ourselves and everything we've been just brought down. So I hate saying we've been beaten down to that level. Cause I hate that terminology, but right. we've been brought down to that level where, right. but you know what? You were strong enough to know you needed to do it for her. Yeah. Yes. And so you did, you yes. got away at the first time. And then what happened? So we were living apart, but without anything in court officially. Uh, and then I was diagnosed with breast cancer and I allowed him to weasel his way back in to help take care of me and our three-year-old at the time while I was going through treatment. And he was good on his best behavior for many, many months, you know, and it was sort of like, okay, this, this is okay (laughs) for a little while. Um, And then, you know, things just started to escalate again. Then he was pulling her into the disputes that we were having. And I call it holding her and me emotionally hostage. Absolutely. Right. And so you know, and it got to the point where <clears throat> I knew again that I had to leave for the last time. So you left, but for one second, you're good now. Your breast cancer is gone and you're yes. fantastic. Yes. Congratulations. Yes. Thank you. So you're a survivor in so many ways and in so many different platforms. So how did you leave the second time? <clears throat> so the second time was interesting because I wasn't, the first time I left, I had a great job. Like I lots of money, like not lots of money, but you know, like I was doing fine, you know, good credit score, all the things. <clears throat> Second time I hadn't worked because of chemo brain. So I, I didn't have a job. Like there was like, you know, Crystal was in the tank, like lots of stuff. Um, so it was a completely different situation, Sure. but, but essentially <clears throat> I told a friend that I had to leave. I was able to secure an apartment that didn't require um, income verification like it was an all God miracle working. I was going to say, situation. Working. yeah, 100%. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and the day before I was supposed to leave, because I wasn't telling the ex I was leaving because I was afraid of what he was going to do. Sure. So it was going to be a surprise. Um, the day before the truck I had rented said that they their truck broke down. They couldn't help me. So the morning of a friend got her neighbors together and they all came with their minivans and they just went into the house, took what I told them to take and leave all while the ex was standing right there. It was very drama slash like lifetime movie-ish. Right. Surreal. Yes. That's God working right there. Absolutely. Yes. hundred percent. Yes. So good yes. for you. You haven't gone back. You broke the cycle. You know, the average return on trips are seven that you go yeah. back. Um, so you ended up sharing custody with him were you how were you how are you handling it when he would have her I, I don't even know how I would handle that if that was my situation yeah how did you how did you handle that <clears throat> well you know there's a very common feeling that like there's a void obviously like when in any divorce situation right when your right. kids are with their dad or whatever so there's the void there was this like unfair feeling because I knew that he was just going to park her in front of the TV and not do cool things with her. Like that's at the minimum, but then it, then it got really bad to the point where unfortunately his alcohol abuse took over his life and he was neglecting her and neglecting, taking care of her and putting her in dangerous situations and all sorts of things. So it, it was hard in the beginning, but then it just got harder. You know, like there was an an ease point where I would enjoy the couple of days where she was with him because I could be on my own and my cup. Yeah, exactly. But that was short lived because then it was more constantly worried about her, her safety and emotionally and, and physically. Sure. Um, yeah. So then, then it escalated. 
And so tell us where you are now. So we're standing uh, in a, a life that is a miracle because as things were escalating with the danger that my daughter was in every time she was with him, um, there was never enough evidence. People wouldn't come forward. No one would be a witness who actually could be a witness because they were afraid of what he would do if they, if he knew. So I was feeling completely desperate. And so again, um, I really believe that God gave me the courage, you know, after circumstances came up, he gave me the courage to stand up and start to, I I gave my ex a breathalyzer at at custody exchanges uh, because I knew he was drunk all the time. And that led through a whole series. Like we could do a whole nother like podcast on that, just that story alone, but it led to, it led to a protective order and sole custody. And that's a miracle. And it's something that I used to drool over when I heard of other moms who had that right. situation. And so that's why, that's why I'm on the podcast with you. That's why I do this because I believe I'm standing in a miracle that other people need to hear because Absolutely. it's really easy, as you know, to get to the point where you think nothing will change. No one will believe me. The courts no will help me. Yes. And it's very easy because you have circumstantial evidence that proves that. And so I had that. And I also had my trust and faith in God to know that this was not it. And he wanted better. And I believe he wants better for everyone that's in the situation, whether they are in a domestic violence situation right now with or without kids, or they're sharing custody and they're in this post-separation abuse situation, any of it. I believe that there is healing and wholeness for all of us. Absolutely. We don't know the timing. We don't know how, you know, all that stuff, but that faith is necessary to take whatever next step you you need to take and you don't know what's on the other side. There's never a guarantee. Right. Right. I couldn't agree more. I absolutely couldn't agree more. I was so excited when we started talking to get you on because I could, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, I had so much overwhelming evidence. People were like, why do you have so much? I had the medical records that coincided with the photographs and the photographs that coincided with the injuries. And then, you know, the operations and this and that and the other. And then I went so far as I wore a wire and he confessed to everything because they love to brag about what they did. Yes. And, you know, he bragged and bragged and bragged, but he was after the military. The military covers it up for themselves. They were covering it up and turning a blind eye and, you know, oh, he broke my nose on an installation in front of his captain. Nothing, nothing happens, nothing. Well, I go to the civilian sector. He's active. There's not much we can do. You got to go to the military. I ended up getting finally a female detective, God bless her, who was like, I don't care who he is. I'm going. So she went and picked him up. We had him on nine felonies, dead to rights. He walked. He walked. Why? Because of the technicality. And it was, well, who took out the warrants? And, you know, you were supposed to do this and you weren't supposed to do that. And, you know, the MPs are supposed to work with CID and decide what's going to happen. And then they work with the private sector. And it's like, I'm not military. I don't. And I know there's great military. Don't get me wrong. I know there's fantastic soldiers and I thank them for their service, but it's, they're not all great. It's just like men. It's just like women. There are abusers out there. It doesn't mean that they're all bad. It just means some of them. So people need to, and that's something else we were talking about before is people need the strength. They need to see they're not alone. They need to see that, you know, there are people that they can talk to, you know, and I, before I got my doctor, I told everybody, I don't have, well, I still don't have a doctor in psychology or psychiatry, but it's, you don't have 
you know, you can go to someone and, and, and counseling and therapy is so critical for, for their healing. But if you have people who've been through it and can say, this is what I did to survive, maybe you can take a few pages from my book and, and maybe it'll help you because everyone is worth it. They need to fight. They need to survive because they're worth it. Nobody asks for this. Nobody. And people just so quickly want to judge and they want to say, why did you stay? And why did you allow it? And I would never let someone hit me or, you know, degrade me like that. And it's like, do you think we asked him for it? Do you think we're like, hey, this side of my face, you know, doesn't have a bruise anymore. Let's just fix that today. Nobody does that. You know, we, you know, I, I love the Black Lives Matter movement and how strong it became. And I want to get something like that for domestic violence and that strength in numbers so that we can help and bring awareness. You know, I, I was looking at the statistics, Vicki, and it's, um, you know, the numbers are getting outrageous, especially with COVID. They went through the roof for domestic violence. But do you realize that it's less than 10 percent of the abusers that spend any time incarcerated for their crime? And I mean, that's, about that, right. that's insane. But yeah. then yet you see all of these self-defense cases. You know, there was a woman who got beaten half to death and he didn't get any charges on him. He got away with it. And then, you know, they're like, well, the detective didn't want to investigate it. You know, there wasn't enough probable cause, blah, blah, blah. Well, he did it to her again and she killed him and she's in jail. How, how does that even work? So we're supposed to just lay there or or stand there and let him, you know, continue to do what he does or what she does if the male's the victim. And then we can't protect ourselves. We can't protect our children because we're going to be the ones incarcerated. How, yeah. how does that work? More survivors, more individuals, because I don't want to, to put it in gender relation, is incarcerated for self-defense, even though courts don't consider it self-defense for standing up for themselves than those that were the cause of it. Yeah. That's so wrong. Yes. That's why, you know, we do what we do and I want to help as much as I can. And I want to bring, you know, as much awareness as we can, because the laws need to change. Um, they need to do more, you know, a restraining order you and I both know is, is something that's just going to tick off our attacker or our abuser. They're not really, you know, going to do anything. Police now, it is the most dangerous call for an officer to go on is domestic violence because they have no idea what they're walking into. But if they don't physically see it, they don't do anything. Right. And then when they leave, you have just irated the monster. You fed him. He's he's ready to go. So what are we supposed to do? We have people saying you deserve it. You shouldn't have stayed. Then you have the law enforcement who aren't doing what they're supposed to do to help us because they didn't physically see it. Yeah. And then if we try to take matters in our own hand, we go to jail. So what do we do? What can we do to help others? We got to share our stories because you just painted a picture that is so bleak, but it is the reality of the situation. Right. So we've got to share our stories and any little victory is worth sharing Absolutely. and celebrating. So it doesn't have to be some grandiose you know, story. It just it, anything, anything, a wake up call, an awareness where you're not going, you know, you 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 decided I'm going to put up a boundary with my narcissistic mother, for example, like, and not let her treat me like this anymore. Like everything needs to be celebrated. So sharing our stories is number one. Um, because as I tell the women that I coach, you never, ever know what is on the other side of action ever. Right. Like we think we do because we, again, we have this, like you just said, this, this picture you just painted, we get, we know, we know that if we, you know, let's say we're sharing custody with uh, our abuser. Most women know if the kids are saying that he's abusing them in whatever way it is, 
and the court doesn't believe them. CPS doesn't believe them. But the mom knows she has to protect their, her kids. She knows if she withholds the kids from that time with dad, she could go to jail. We all know like the situation, but sometimes it's necessary. And, and you need to hear stories of moms who did that and had victory. Right. Absolutely. 1000%. And, you know, then moms are afraid. Well, then the kid goes to him, you know, and it, this, it's so wrong in the society. And we need to do whatever we can because yeah. we need to unite together because it all starts with one voice. It all starts with one person and it starts with a movement that way. And then we make it a reality to advance it. You know, I, I, I really believe that, you know, if a report is done, if a police officer makes a report of domestic violence, you know, in today's world, you can check anything on the internet. I mean, you can hear that every president ever in office is the best president we've ever had. And, and I don't know your political view that I'll talk about politics, but I'm sure we can both say that not every president we've ever had has been the best president in office, but you can find everything on the internet. I believe that a woman or man should be able to you know, go to their local law enforcement office and say, I'm kind of seeing some red flags. Can you just tell me if this guy or this female has a history of reports made or anything of that nature? I mean, we've got to put something in place that at least allows us an opportunity to say, I'm seeing a lot of things, you know, help me, you know, is this what's going on? Kind of, and nothing is really there that that helps at all i mean that that's just wrong and we've got to do something to help that we have to end the cycle so that our kids don't continue it you know when our kids are growing up and they're watching daddy beat mommy or mommy beat daddy then you're saying to your son it's okay to treat a woman that way it's okay for you to treat your mother that way or your sister that way you know it's okay for for you to treat your father that way if it's the roles are reversed or if it's uh you know uh, whatever the case may be the partnership, it's it's okay. It's not because like you said, you started trying to find a person when you were dating that was of a certain way. It's the same thing because our responsibility as parents is to prepare them for their next phase of life and to help them the best way that we can. I will stand in front of a loaded gun in front of my child before I let anybody near her. And that is the reason why I've had as many surgeries as I've had. But you know, to this day, I hear people all the time say, well, you know, like there is, I don't know if you've heard, there's a school in, there's a school district, I apologize, in Missouri that is authorizing paddling. And I'm like, are you serious? And that is something we covered on um, the Unstoppable podcast because it's a little more aggressive and it's not really the foundation for this because we try to keep this light and apartheid. But you're saying it's okay for a stranger or a teacher to paddle our child. You know, and they can get away with it, but you can call CPS if you think your parent is paddling your child. I mean, you're teaching your child there's no safe place to go. Right. And that's not okay. I mean, when did our world get this bad? You know, it's always been really not great in this capacity, but when did it get like this? Right. So how do we make it better for our kids? How do we leave our planet when we go on safer for our children? I love that you asked that question because that is um, my mission with, with how I, why I'm talking, okay, is because it's one thing for us to escape. It's one thing for us to heal. But if our kids keep perpetuating, what is the point? So to me, it's like, we've got to stop it with us and our kids, like no more, okay? And so that to me <clears throat> is how we, one way we stop it. And, you know, it can be, not just as overt, if you will, as someone hitting, like a parent hitting another parent, it can be insidious, like 
um, like a, a dad berating the mom. It can be so many moms I talk to that are still in situations. They know it's unhealthy. They know it's toxic. They know it's abusive. But they are worried that if they leave, it's going to be worse off for their kids because they won't be there to buffer. They won't be there to buffer between the dad and the kids. And I completely get that. I was had that same concern. Right. But on the other side, I know that it is more important to take that risk so that you can provide, like you said, a safe place at least part of the time for the kids. Otherwise, they their home is never safe. Their parents are not safe, no matter what you think you're doing as a mom. Like this mom I talked to the other day, and I did this too. She said, whenever dad comes home, I just take the kids and we go somewhere else. Because she's trying to avoid the inevitable. And I get it. It's still teaching the kids. It is. It right. is. And so you've, so anyway, to answer your question, it's got to be, I, I believe one parent has to be the safe, the emotionally safe parent, let alone the physically safe parent. And a lot of times that requires that one parent, you know, remove the children as best they can. They might have to share custody, but then you fight like hell to protect them in the courts and out of the courts. And you do everything that you can to empower the kids because you've got to teach them. You can't just protect them. Like I wanted to just protect my kid, never have a conflict, you know, and she would be fine. That's unrealistic. Then I started realizing she has to grow up faster than I want her to, because I have to empower her and equip her on how to deal with bullies in school and with her dad. And you know, that's a whole other conversation, but like, where's her safe place? Where's her happy kid place? You know? Right. It has to be with the emotionally safe parent. So one person has to do that. One person has to be that right. for them. Absolutely. You have been amazing to talk with. I would love to be able to um, put all of your links up so that others can contact you. Tell sure. us where we can find you. Yes. Thank you. I really appreciated talking with you too. It's like, we could just talk all day. And I would love it. I would <laughs> love it. I would love it. <laughs> so uh, my website is the survivorcenter.com. And on Facebook, well, on Instagram, I'm at the Survivor Center with underscores in between. And then Facebook, I have a community, a private community for just women, single mom abuse survivors that are sharing custody with their abuser. And that is hopeful and healed moms. I love it. I absolutely love it. I'm going to do something for October being domestic violence awareness. Um, I would love to have you involved in it. We did a, a yes. fundraiser um, a few months ago called podcasting um, fun uh, for pause fun. Uh, okay. Some people don't realize yet. I just had surgery and I, I couldn't wait to talk with Vicki. Um, and so I apologize. This is really my first one back. So uh, we did podcasting for pause, which we do special needs children um, and help them get their forever best friend. So we did. And I started out, I was like, maybe it'll be like a day. I'm going to reach out, see who I could, you know, who'd want to do it. It ended up being three days long. And I loved it because we had just amazing people come out of the woodwork and people are just like, wow, your numbers are crazy. And I'm like, no, it's my guests. It's the people coming out, telling their story and thriving. It's them. It's not me. And it really is. And I want to do something in October for domestic violence. I'd love to have you on. You bring so much insight and light and there's such a comfortability with you that, you know, I would completely endorse anything I could to help you to have people come and talk to you because it's so imperative that we have somewhere to go, that we have someone to talk to. Um, You know, I also do groups where, and I'd love to have you in one or two or permanently where you can come in and just, and just talk to each other. You have that circle of strength 
Um, you know, it's an unconditionally accepted area where you're safe and nobody else is going to be there and you can be you and you can just cry, scream, yell, vent, whatever you need to do. And it's around women and we get it because we've been there. And it's so crucially important, critically important. Um, I would love to link you. I, I don't ever offer this very much. I have a preferred uh, recommended professionals group. Um, and I would love to add you in it too, because I really think you have so much to offer. So please make sure we get all of the specific links. I will add them to this when we go. And uh, I just want to thank you so much. I hope I can um, have the opportunity to have you and your daughter on our teen show, because I think that would be super fun. <laughs> thank you so much. You you are amazing. You are a light. And I'm so grateful that you're in this space as well, bringing oh. light and, and an honor basically to all survivors. Thank you. And again, I apologize because I'm not even two weeks post up from my arm amputation. And I'm just like, I feel like I'm sporadic and I'm not at my best. So I apologize. So much. Well, I can't wait to see you at your best then because this is amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I look forward to working with you again. Same Thanks here, sister. Here.